Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Jan Mati Dolbaum, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen and co-author of the recent book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. Thanks very much for joining me today, Jan. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, now, before we start, I just want to mention a change in the format here. Uh, we're no longer uh, conducting this podcast on the social network formerly known as Twitter. Um, instead, we're recording it in the studio. Uh, so, so no longer on Twitter spaces or X spaces, um, at least for the moment. Now, this is a return to past practice, uh, but with a twist. While we won't be able to take questions live, we are inviting listeners to send questions on the topics at hand in advance. Um, it looks like no questions have come in ahead of today's today's conversation, which which again is the is the first time we've gone back to studio recording. But I encourage listeners uh, to send questions in the future. Now, while this podcast is called "The Week Ahead in Russia," we're going to focus on something that occurred on Friday, uh, but clearly will have long lasting consequences, and not least for the person it happened to, uh, Alexei Navalny. The already imprisoned Kremlin opponent uh, was convicted uh, late Friday on charges of extremism that he and his supporters uh, say are absurd. Uh, and he was sentenced to 19 years in a so-called special regime prison, a maximum security facility and the harshest kind of prison there is in Russia, which is saying something, uh, something very unpleasant. These are places where people sentenced to life uh, and those uh, whom the state claims are particularly dangerous repeat offenders are held. Now, this seems telling in a way, I think. Uh, I mean, Navalny's protests, his political efforts, uh, including an attempt to challenge Putin in the 2018 presidential election, and his investigative reports on evidence of corruption among high officials, people in Putin's circles, uh, these have all been nonviolent, uh, but but what Navalny contends is is that Putin and his associates actually do find him dangerous in the sense of posing a threat uh, to their grip on power. Now, I, I mentioned uh, the book, uh, Jan. I mentioned the book that you co-authored with Morvan Laouet and Ben Noble. It's called Alexei Navalny: Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. And there's a question mark on that last part. And I guess that question still stands uh, after this, this verdict and sentence. Uh, the book was published in 2021. That's before uh, this extremism case was initiated, but after Navalny had been arrested that January upon his return to Russia from Germany, where he'd been recovering from a nearly fatal nerve agent poisoning uh, in Siberia the previous uh, August that he blames on Putin uh, and the Federal Security Service, the, the FSB. And he's, in fact, published evidence um, of, of FSB involvement uh, in the poisoning. Yeah, now one thing I want to ask you is this. The new verdict and the 19-year maximum 
I'm sorry, maximum security prison sentence. Do these developments fit in with what you've written in the book uh, and, and how you believed uh, the Kremlin's standoff with Navalny would play out? Or do they somehow come as a surprise, something unexpected? And in either way, I guess, additional question, what that might mean, what what might that mean for the future in terms of Navalny and Russia? Right. Uh, thanks, Steve, for this question. I think um, we have to start, or I have to start, uh, saying that we did not predict this, and we didn't try to predict this. So we wrote this book in early 2021, as you said, um, after Navalny had returned to Russia and, and was being tried. and um, But before um, this extremism case was, was initiated, but we were busy keeping up with the um, with the with the facts on the ground in April, May 2021, while we were finishing the manuscript. And many, many things were happening in really quick succession that we, we hadn't anticipated maybe to, to be happening so quickly. So for example, it was then already clear that um, the FBK, Navalny's uh, main organization, the uh, Foundation Against, um, or for the Fight of Corruption, um, was being listed as an extremist organization. So this, it, it was to be anticipated that at some point there would be a case initiated against Navalny and his um, uh, his team on the grounds of these uh, of, of this legislation. And um, so we didn't predict that this would happen in the way it, it did, um, but it clearly, I think, fits the trajectory on, on which we saw Russia back then already, and many others obviously saw Russia as well. And we tried to describe that trajectory in the book. And so we, we um, uh, frame it in a path from an informational autocracy towards a more classical authoritarian regime. And an informational autocracy is, is a term that we borrow from a book um, written by Sergei Guriev um, and Daniel Treisman, who have, have argued that informational autocracies are sort of the modern version of authoritarian regimes that depend on um, much more on manipulation than on overt repression. Uh, so they, they depend on manipulating the, the, the people's view of the autocrats um, via propaganda and um, sort of uh, changing what what they believe uh, the true nature of the regime is and making making the population believe that it's actually performing well and that it's uh, that it's actually legitimate rather than using so much author, so much overt repression and and Russia used to be that kind of authoritarian regime. Uh, for quite a long time, and and now we're seeing it moving towards the more 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 sort of overtly repressive, classical authoritarian regime of the 20th century. We we would say, and um, and I can just maybe briefly line out um, a sort of a case study of of how that trajectory has has looked. I mean, these these are all things that are familiar to to us and to the to the listeners of this podcast. But I think it makes sense to sort of look at them in a little bit more of a um, of a distant perspective and and place them in uh, in, a, in a in a succession that really makes clear this pathway so for example if you look at the foreign agent law or the um, previous cases against Navalny or also his participation in the 
mayoral elections in Moscow in 2013. I think these are all cases where this informational uh, capacity of Russia's authoritarian regime clearly comes comes out. So um, if we take the foreign agent law, for example, I think the main point, at least initially, was was discreditation rather than um, strong repression, right? So this was a law that that made you, as an organization, um, declare that you're a foreign agent if you receive any sort of foreign funding and also engage in very vaguely defined political activity. And obviously this was something that created bureaucratic troubles for these organizations that, that were... Um, that, that were labeled foreign agents or that had to label themselves foreign agent. Um, and it also undermined their, their work, you know, in a very significant capacity, but it also really, um, you know, the discreditation, I think was the main point here. It, it sort of was to shape public opinion on these people. So it attached this, uh, very, um, unpleasant label to them and discredit them in the eyes, not just of, of the population at large, but also of their collaborators um, and make those collaborators sort of hesitant to work with them out of fear for, for their own reputation. Right? So that was a clear um, application of this strategy, I think, to, to manipulate rather than to, to overtly repress necessarily. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and also the, the cases against Navalny, they were clearly, I mean, they were repression in a very direct sense. They, the, I'm talking now about the Kiraflias case and the Yves Rocher case. So these were... Uh, criminal cases that um, were um, brought against Navalny, um, and and one of them eventually led up to uh, to his first prison term um, when he returned to Russia in 2021 because he was sort of on parole and and violated allegedly violated the um, the parole conditions for this um, for this verdict on the Ivoshe case, and that's what got him in prison uh, in 2021. Um, but but still, these were cases that were that were also. Um, manipulative of public opinion, if you will, because they were um, they were not political from uh, on the side of the regime. They were fraud cases, embezzlement cases, and sort of um, trying to show that Navalny is not is just like all the other people he accuses of being corrupt and of embezzling funds. Right. So this was also part of the strategy, sort of to, to discredit him, as much as it was part of the strategy to bring him behind bars. And and then the the Moscow mayoral elections um, was also something like this. So this this was a case is just 10 years ago, kind of even unbelievable that, that, that this could happen in Russia only 10 years ago that an overtly oppositional figure with uh, really some public backing could be officially on the ballot. Um, but that was the case. And that was the case because uh, the Kremlin wanted someone on the ballot who was openly oppositional and who was um, sort of that, I think that was an attempt to showcase that um, the opposition can, they can even be on the ballot, but they don't, they, they don't succeed. And um, that was another, some, you know, obviously there were um, hurdles and bureaucratic troubles created for them and, and sort of ensured that they didn't succeed, but that was an entirely different strategy to what we see today. Right. Um, and and um, so applying the extremism law against uh, FBK and against Navalny personally, I think is really a qualitative shift. Um, so so the regime is no longer hiding that this is a political um, standoff. 
Um, so they're not trying to discredit Navalny by saying he's just a fraud like all the others, you know, implying that, you know, might be uh, regimes also full of frauds, um, but but Navalny's not better than them. So that was uh, the, the idea to, um, you know, to discredit opposition and activism in general. And now they're saying, look, um, this is a political threat and we are neutralizing that threat. And Putin has has made that very clear when he just recently commented on Vladimir Karamurza's case, um, when he said some, I'm paraphrasing, he said something like, we're in an armed conflict, we need sort of a strong stance vis-a-vis people who are doing damage domestically. And sending by that, sending a clear signal that, you know, anything goes now, and these are, these are political enemies, and they should be shut down. And that's, I think, a really qualitative shift that has been playing out over quite some time and um it's really now no longer using repression to shape people's perception of opposition like it was maybe done in the 2010s but it's now really using repression to simply shut down opposition altogether and that that reinforces what we're saying in the book that this shift is occurring from an informational to an um to a more classical authoritarian regime now obviously that trend has been going on for quite some time right it's not something that's altogether new um since two or three years but if you look at the balotnaya trials for example they started in 2013 that was maybe one of the first signs that this this shift was was happening um when there was um really heavy um sentences brought against participants of this um, rally in Moscow in, in 2012. And um, so that that trend set in at least then and has been going on for quite some time. And it was sort of in parallel to this more, more manipulative strategy that was that was going on. But but I think we see, uh, you know, the weight of the repressive side of this increasing over time and um, uh, relative to, to the more subtle manipulative side, I think. Now, um, and yeah, uh, now you can of course ask why do we see that trajectory, right? And that's uh, that's a, uh, probably a pretty long answer. I, I don't want to, um, don't really want to go into that. But um, I mean, of course, there's an increase of uh, Siloviki um, with sort of a zero-sum uh, worldview and a mindset of preventive action. I think, and sort of that increase might have spurred that that change. And so then sort also, of, sorry to interrupt. So sort of. Uh... A shift, uh, maybe a little bit in terms of who who's kind of influential or in power within you know within Putin's circles to the more less subtle, um, I guess less subtle people who you know from people who would be applying what I think you called informational autocracy to people who are going for strict uh, direct repression. Is that is that right? Yes, yes, exactly. So that's a, a uh, one one factor that might explain that. Um, just a shift in who's calling the shots and, and what are their mindsets and what are they what do they think? Then also the legitimation uh, legitimization strategy has changed. I think also with the protests for fair elections in 2011-12, um, there's much more of a um, of an of an emphasis of this narrative of you know Russia's being encroached upon not just not just from the outside but also uh, from a seemingly uh, you know a liberal opposition. Um, that we have to defend ourselves against and defend, uh, you know, Russian statehood and uh, Russian cultural identity um, against that. And and that sort of creates a narrative that there is an enemy that has to be, um, that, that Russia has to be defended against. And that also presupposes, you know, a stronger role of repression. 
um, I think, quite logically, if you if you stay within that narrative. Mm-hmm. And then also, maybe a third factor was also the just the lack of uh, factors that helped avert such repressive developments in other post-Soviet states, right? So obviously Russia is not very vulnerable to political conditionality from the from the EU or from, from whoever. Um, and there are also uh, no large independent economic actors. Um, and Putin has been very clear from the very beginning that this is not something he would like to see. And he's, he's been very persistent in, like, Khodorkovsky was... Uh, was obviously the most prominent case of those where you know, the class of independent oligarchs was just eliminated in in contrast to other post-Soviet regimes. And then also there was no geopolitical cleavage that could be mobilized um, uh, against uh, against an authoritarian leader, as we saw, for example, in, in Ukraine or in Moldova. So um, all of these factors were absent. Lucan Wei has called them um, factors that sort of create pluralism by default, so that things that um, create barriers to the, the closing of authoritarian regimes, and all of these were, were absent in Russia. So that that's clearly an explanation or a, a set of factors that, that help explain why we, we see that shift. Right? Um, and then obviously for the future, <laughs> because you asked about the future also, yeah. uh, it is very hard to see how that trajectory might change or might might change course. Um, so for one thing, I think even for the repressive apparatus as a bureaucratic entity, it is difficult to change course. So there was recently, I don't know if you've, if you've seen that, there was an, an interview in Medusa recently um, by an anonymous Russian colleague who uh, un- underlined that this is just a simple quantitative performance evaluation, like in in many other bureaucratic um, entities in Russia. So, you know, if there were substantially fewer criminal cases open next year, for example, then that would count as an underperformance. Right. And this is not not something that the repressive apparatus would, would like to would like to see itself doing. Right. And so, obviously, they also don't want many more, just from an you know, from a perspective that that also means more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's definitely that that there won't be any less, right? So even if the political expectations don't radicalize further, or even if they become less explicit, you know, compared to, to the Putin statement I, I quoted earlier, uh, th- then from a bureaucratic point of view, a change is not likely. And then, of course, now all of these, these other factors that I lined out are pretty much in place and might o- only only increase and depending on, on how the Russian army uh, performs um, in Ukraine, uh, that might also, you know, make a, another wave of mobilization uh, perhaps uh, coming or, or less unlikely. And then that will also then necessitate further repression, probably because that will also create some sort of backlash in the population. And so there's really not much, um, you know, to be hopeful about uh, regarding this trend of a um of an increasingly uh, radical, repressive uh, trajectory. All right. Well, thanks very much uh, for that. It's a pretty grim, but uh, but thank you. It sounds like kind of a snowball effect. I mean, not one mm-hmm. that that increases in size extremely quickly, but one that kind of uh, rolls along. And, and it sounds like, uh, like with many things in Russia now, just the political scene in general, if, if it can be called that, um, 
a lot will depend on what happens in in the war in Russia's war on Ukraine. Um, and, and thanks for, for going back. I mean, I think it's very, uh, you know, back to 2013, Navalny's run for Moscow mayor. Um, and the, and the, what you've pointed out uh, was, has been a big shift in the way the Kremlin is, is prosecuting or, and persecuting Navalny, I guess. I, I had certainly noticed, of course, that in the past, until he returned, um, to Russia in 2021 following uh, his poisoning. Uh, before that, he had never been, he had been in jail in, in lockups many times, you know, after protesting, you know, uh, uh, or detained on the street and, and brought to jail. But he had never been imprisoned, like convicted. And he, he was once convicted uh, around the time of, the, of that mayoral election, 20. 13 convicted and sentenced to an at real prison time as they call it but then that was um, but then that was uh, reversed yep. uh, you know apparently because it seems like because they you know they feared he'd becoming a martyr so I'd noticed you know that change from not imprisoning him to uh, you know imprisoning him and increasingly for increasingly long terms but I, I, I have to say I hadn't noticed what you pointed out. You know, was the the difference? You know, these these cases of fraud and embezzlement uh, to portray him as you know just a, sort of a common criminal or a, you know a corrupt person um, to these to overtly political uh, cases culminating in this um, extremism case and and in fact he apparently still faces a possible. Uh, you know, uh, investigation and possible trial on terrorism charges, which which could add to his uh, to his sentence. Um, you know, which now stands at nineteen years. So, thanks very much. Now, another aspect of this that I wanted to discuss uh, is kind of the optics of the verdict hearing um, last Friday. Now, I watched what I guess was a video, I think it was a video of the video that journalists at the prison where Navalny is held and where the trial took place uh, were able to watch from a room entirely separate from from the makeshift, what, what I think was a makeshift, makeshift courtroom uh, at the prison. Um, and the hearing was, was quite a spectacle. For one thing, who schedules a verdict hearing for four o'clock? On a Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. um, I think journalists used to covering Russian trial hearings. I mean, I I was in Russia and covered the, the Kharkovsky trials. Um, I think journalists used to covering tri- uh, trial hearings that sometimes go verdict hearings that sometimes go on for days as the judge uh, reads out the verdict and sentence that execute. Uh, I'm sorry, that uh, echoes the prosecutor's case. Um, many of us probably suspected that the sentence um, might come sometime this week, not not last week. But no, uh, this hearing on Friday was over, and I believe it was less than 10 minutes. Um, Jan, what, what did you think of the way this was done? Was it essentially trolling on the part of the state, kind of an effort to send a message, uh, in addition to the clear and chilling message sent by, by the sentence itself? Yeah, um, I mean... First of all, clearly, I think the verdict itself was obviously curated in detail, or at least the presidential administration made made sure that it, you know, that it 
what that, that there was no not going to su- surprise anyone right so that that this um was really going to lock up nobody for a long time i think that that is clear that this is a politically um politically motivated and, and highly uh, curated verdict mm-hmm. um the uh, FBK team um, has even done a little investigation into the judge and especially one FSB officer who was present at the trial and who, as they claim, based again on their research of, of uh, phone connections and, um, uh, and and sort of openly available or at least available data on who, which numbers call which other numbers, which they also used for investigating the, the poisoning, right? Um, so they did another investigation of that sort, and they apparently found uh, that this FSB officer who was present at the trial was also, or had called the judge several times before, in, in, in the weeks before the verdict, and interpret this as evidence for, you know, a clear, um, a very clear monitoring of the whole trial by the uh, by the FSB, which mm-hmm. you know I, I, I obviously I can't confirm, but which is entirely plausible. So so that is clear, and um, I don't know about how the details of, of the trial itself were then choreographed, and I obviously I don't have any insight on that, and we shouldn't necessarily read too much into this into these details. But on the other hand. Um, I think this is also, you know, how how this whole trial unfolded is really testimony to the process that I spoke about earlier, that the political nature of the repression is becoming more evident. That, um, and in in that in that sense, maybe the fact that the judges spare everyone the effort to sit through this, you know, hours and days of reading a long and detailed verdict, when everybody knows what the outcome is and and what the purpose of this of this. A trial is anyway so maybe that is something that underlines this this idea right and, and clearly um, the whole setup was you know very telling of the direction in which the regime is moving so all the secrecy about about this trial um, the, the blatant violations of the defendants rights um, so one of the most glaring examples obviously is not just the secrecy and and, and the difficulty of obtaining any sort of information um, for outsiders, but also um, the fact that Navalny's, uh, Navalny's lawyers had almost no time or a few days to get acquainted with the details of the trial themselves. And, um, and then just the optics um, of this improvised courtroom and uh, the, the people in masks, uh, you know, uh, standing around and and sort of all of this is clearly a, a very clear sign i think of this trajectory towards a, a full-blown dictatorship that is you know less and less willing and perhaps also less and less able to hide its nature you know so this is not something that is not even an imitation of a rule of law here right this is a clear um it is a, it's a clear trial as you would expect in a dictatorship you know, um, it, it's no more, not not any more, you know, designed to create the illusion of a, you know, of a fair and proper trial. And 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 I think in that sense, this is this is telling. I'm not so sure about the, you know, the, the detail of the timing, but in in general, this this trial is very much 
conforming to the trend that that we've been talking about earlier. All right. Yeah. I mean, great. I I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, it seems like in the past you've had these these trials that that were sort of an imitation of you know of ju- of justice, and and now you have this. Okay, come four o'clock, uh, and and here it is. You know, this right. is this is obviously determined in advance. Um, and, and, and here's what, here's what we're doing. So, so I think that's a great point. It actually reminds me of something that, uh, Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, apparently told the New York Times recently and for, for a story that I I think came out today or yesterday, um, about the election next year. And he, he said, Peskov said that, uh, essentially, election is in Russia less less a democ less a democratic process this isn't an exact quote uh but 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 costly uh bureau less democracy than than it is costly bureaucracy and I think you know I I don't know why he said that it seems like a strange thing to to say publicly but but to me it kind of conveys a similar message um that you know that there's, there's less of an imitation uh, mm-hmm. Going on less of a of a effort to pretend that this, you know, this is a justice system and that elections are democratic. So it's an interesting uh, parallel, I think. Yeah. All right, um, Jan. Uh, again, thanks. Thanks uh, very much. Uh, great insights on this on this very, uh, I guess, I think chilling case. I mean, we now have uh, Navalny's now. Um, set to and and f- to be honest, I haven't heard a uh, word of of an appeal. They have ten days to appeal, I believe. Um, but obviously, uh, little or no chance for a change. Uh, sometimes they adjust the number of years. Uh, but um, uh, you know, now sentenced to nineteen years again in a special regime prison. Uh, the the harshest. Uh, type of prison that Russia has, and um, he, he will have uh, little communication with the outside world. Um, so, uh, thanks very much, Jan, for uh, for your insights on this, uh, and and for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. Okay, uh, once again, I've been speaking to Jan Mati Dahlbaum, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen, and co-author of the book Navalny. Putin's nemesis, Russia's future. Uh, I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. As I mentioned, we are now welcoming questions sent in advance, so I encourage listeners to send questions ahead of next week's podcast if you have any. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays, but not this week. The next edition will be issued on August 18th. Thanks for listening.